Hi, it's Zane Horowitz, and we're back for another Oregon Poison Center Journal Club for April 2012, April 19th. Today, since the weeds are being growing over the my back wall, it's time to talk about herbicides. So today we're talking about uh, two things that always are interesting, paraquat and diquat. We last visited these topics about three years ago. I'm going to start off, as I usually do, it's kind of a historical piece, which kind of introduces some of the uh, concepts and some of the conflict that goes on here. These are sort of two dueling letters from the British Medical Journal as they're off to contradict each other there very quickly. It's from February of 1975 and the response letter is in September of 1975. So the first letter is on paraquat poisoning treated with immunosuppressants and potassium aminobenzoate by a Dr. James Blathwaite from Lancashire, and he goes, Sir, I'd like to report an interesting case, and basically summarize it without reading the whole letter. It added, schizophrenic, 32-year-old man who was admitted after swallowing seven days earlier um, Gormoxone, which is a brand name for Paraclot in England, and he had more than, uh, somewhere between a quarter and a third of a cup of 20 cc's, diluted with orange juice in an attempt to kill himself, and unfortunately, he says, he did not inform his general practitioner for six days, who then he informed him, and then he noticed he had the classic inflammation of the tongue, the palate, and pharynx. He was a little short of breath by this point, and a chest x-ray showed nonspecific consolidation in the left lower lung fields. He had albuminuria and hematuria on his urine analysis, and they did a qualitative test for paraquat, as we'll talk about with so later, sodium dithionite, and it was negative by this point. And they felt that he had already was in the fibrotic stage of lung disease. So he said, hmm, I'm going to start him on steroids, uh, pregnisolone, and um, also treat him with, um, he said, azeothiopine. I'm skipping over the area here. Um, and he went ahead and did so and um, started him on immunosuppressive therapy for him. That was the main mechanism of action, 50 milligrams of azeothiopine four times a day. And sure enough, about a month later, uh, the patient appeared to be getting better. His BUN fell, his PO2 rose, and he was able to be discharged. And he writes, I hope to publish further details later, although I could never find that, and sort of puts this out as, although this isolated case may prove nothing, in view of the usual grave prognosis associated with marked pulmonary signs, this patient's response may be an interest to clinicians who may be dealing with uh, such similar cases. Um, so that sort of percolated around uh, British literature for um, a few months. Uh, there was a response letter that says unsuccessful immunosuppressant treatment of paraquat poisoning by Dr. Uh, H. Malcolm and John Beasley from Hereford. And they said they noted the prior letter of Dr. Lathwaite and successful use, and however. They say, we report two further cases treated with immunosuppressants, one within 48 hours and the other uh, a little bit later, and they didn't go as well. And they summarized them briefly. A 38-year-old took a mouthful of paraquat, came to the hospital 24 hours later. He was treated with oral bentonite. Um, he got immunosuppressant with azathioprine and prednisone, and the eighth day uh, afterwards, he began to have short of breath, exertion, and he died, and autopsy had pulmonary fibrosis. Second patient, a man age 20, took four mouthfuls of paraquat. He was treated with oral bentonite. Um, this was given 200 cc's of this every hour uh, for two days, and then they had paraquat detecting his urine. And 15 days later, he had pulmonary uh, chest x-ray showed bilateral shadowing. At that point, 15 days later, he was started with azathioprine, pregnisolone, and potassium aminobenzoate. Um, but he died about uh, 10 days after that, and again, microscopy showed extensive pulmonary fibrosis, and he said, unfortunately, both in the early treatment and late treatment, in these two cases, it obviously did not modify the course of the outcome of these patients. So therein lies a 35-year-old controversy on how to treat these patients, and unfortunately, as we'll see in looking at the literature, the controversy in predicting who's going to live, who's going to die, and who gets treated, and where they fit in the whole continuum of things remains um, up in the air, to say the best. So before, we always ignore poor diquat, which is actually still available in the United States. I, I, I thought this time around, instead of talking about it last as a throw-in, I'm going to start out with diquat 
and talk a little bit about how it works and why it's maybe a little bit less toxic, although potentially still lethal if used as a suicidal measure. Start that out. We'll start with Shana. Hello, I'm Shana Cusin. I'm one of the toxicology fellows here at the Oregon Prison Center. And I am presenting the article, Mechanisms of Toxicity, Clinical Features, and Management of Diplot Poisoning, a review uh, out of the UK. And as Zane mentioned, this is a nice review of uh, the long-neglected cousin of paraquat, diquat. So um, diquat is structurally similar to paraquat. It has a bipyridal ring structure like paraquat, um, and it exists as a divalent cation. Uh, it associates with bromide and chloride. Um, it is classified as a non-selective contact herbicide available commercially since the 1950s. Uh, there are a lot of formulations of diquat alone, but it is mostly found in mixed formulations along with paraquat. Um, Weedall and Clear are two trade names. Um, from a global perspective, one-third of diquat sold is used as a contact herbicide, and two-thirds is used as a desiccant um, before harvest for seed and fodder crops. So, from a talk standpoint, which of course is what we are interested in, Similar to paraquat, diquat is a potent redox cycler. Um, basically, it, uh, it, it does two things. The first thing is that it can form a superoxide anion radical. And uh, once it does this, it basically cycles back to its original form and is free to uh, continue this redox uh, cycle um, and perpetuate its oxidation and reduction of uh, of oxygen and wreak havoc. Um, basically, you know, normally when you generate your superoxides, you have catalase and glutathione, which can uh, help detoxify these. But if you've got enough of the diquat around, you can overwhelm your protective mechanisms. And then you end up with all of these uh, little superoxide molecules running rampant and diquat cycling through its redox cycle and continuing to generate them. Uh, there's a second mechanism if you have iron around in which the superoxide anion um, can react with hydrogen peroxide and generate a hydroxyl radical, which is even more dangerous to cells. Um, this will result in lipid peroxidation, and uh, you can get membrane damage from this. So basically, there's a bunch of oxidative stress going on with your superoxide molecules and your hydroxyl radicals, and... Uh, you end up having iron released and uh, depletion of your NADPH, and everything kind of comes to a crashing halt in your cells, basically. So um, the one sort of difference they don't really get into, this is basically similar to how paraquat works, but diquat doesn't accumulate in the lungs, so all of these, all of the uh, free radical oxidative damage is occurring in other cellular systems, but not in the lungs. So... Uh, the rest of the article talks about the clinical features of diquat toxicity, but all of this is based on a total of 30 cases from 1968 to 1999. Uh, so a lot of this has to kind of be taken with a grain of salt because some of the symptoms they report are seen maybe in one patient out of these 30. Uh, their um, see, mortality rate was 13 of the 30 patients, or 43% were fatal. So first thing is local toxicity. Uh, when people ingest diquat, they can get oral uh, ulceration, corrosive damage. Uh, you can also get dermal or inhalational um, irritation as well as eye irritation. Uh, vaginal exposure apparently has occurred as well. There are a few references to a case where uh, this occurred. So basically on contact, you get corrosive damage. Um, you can get hemorrhagic ulceration. If we're talking about the oropharynx, mucosal edema of the tongue and the oropharynx occur. Um, they reference one case where somebody was working with diquat and uh, the chemical got into his boots and he suffered third degree burns at his feet. Two days later, they had uh, become partial thickness burns and he ended up needing to get a skin graft for his feet to heal. Um, they also described nail growth disturbances from people who've gotten diquat on their hands. Um, epistaxis and throat irritation from individuals who were splashed with diquat uh, while, you know, decanting it for just basic use. Uh, conjunctivitis and corneal scarring have also been reported if it's splashed directly into the eye. 
So, of you know, probably more interest is the systemic toxicity. Um, the skin itself is a pretty effective barrier, and dermal exposure is unlikely to lead to systemic toxicity. Um, usually, if you drink it, that's when you're going to start seeing symptoms that are going to be more sort of involving other organ systems. So, first and foremost, of course, the GI tract. When somebody drinks Diquat, they tend to get severe and extensive mucosal damage to the mouth, the esophagus, and the stomach, um, also to the small intestine. You can see somebody develop abdominal pain, vomiting, or diarrhea within even a few moments of ingestion. One of the bigger problems is that after ingesting Diquat, um, patients can develop a paralytic ileus. This is generally seen one to four days after ingestion. Uh, they referenced four cases of this, but in all four cases, this was thought to be a cause of a patient basically developing hypovolemic shock because you got a lot of uh, sequestration of fluid in this paralytic gut. Um, so with respect to the kidneys, uh, there are a number of reports of various types of renal injury. Renal failure definitely has been seen. Happens uh, between one hour and five days after ingestion. They propose a couple mechanisms. One is secondary to hypovolemia, particularly in the scenario of gut sequestration um, that I just talked about. Also, uh, there is some thought that the diquat is directly toxic to the kidneys. Um, uh, there are reports of lung disease developing or lung injury developing after diquat ingestion. Although uh, in cases where this is reported, it's more akin to an ARDS sort of picture or pulmonary edema in the setting of multi-system organ failure, unlike the uh, pulmonary fibrosis that you see with Paraquat. So that's like one of the key differences here. Uh, there are cardiotoxic effects reported, um, ranging from dysrhythmias to one patient who was seen to have subendocardial hemorrhage on autopsy. CNS effects, uh, coma can occur. Uh, this was reported between 18 hours and four days after ingestion. At least one of these patients, uh, again, we're talking about only small numbers, so it's hard to make generalizations, but one of these patients had some uh, pontine hemorrhages, uh, although apparently this patient also was uh, dialyzed, so they can't really say for sure if this was a CNS bleed secondary to getting uh, heparin on the dialysis machine versus uh, focal hemorrhage related to the diquat ingestion. There have been seizures reported after diquat ingestion. A um, couple reports of seizures about 12 hours out. Uh, in general, other sort of CNS effects, somnolence, medriasis, reduced light reflex, dysarthria, and aspastic tetraparesis were also reported. There are some heme effects seen, um, specifically leukopenia, pancytopenia, and thrombocytopenia, although the authors point out that all of the cases with thrombocytopenia were patients who received dialysis or charcoal hemoperfusion, so it's possible this is secondary to that rather than the diquat itself. Basically, so it can, uh, diquat can knock out a bunch of organ systems, and uh, these authors felt that putting all this together, they uh, felt that features suggestive of a poor prognosis were rapid onset of acute renal failure, intestinal ileus um, with associated fluid sequestration in the gut, ventricular dysrhythmias, and uh, pulmonary complications requiring ventilation, as well as coma. So they uh, proposed three groupings of diquat poisonings based on severity and with some prognostic value. They say group one, they would consider mild, which is less than one gram of diquat, where patients pre predominantly would have GI symptoms and um, some renal impairment. Group two is moderate to severe poisoning, which is one to 12 grams of diquat. These patients, you would expect to see multi-organ system failure, uh, particularly acute renal failure, um, and up to two-thirds of cases may recover. And then group three, which is fulminant poisoning, or more than 12 grams, will generally develop multi-system organ failure and death uh, within 24 to 48 hours. So finally, what's a, what's a toxic dose? From looking at the 30 cases available, it seems that uh, a fatal dose is probably in the range of 6 to 12 grams, um, and the time scale of death ranges from 14 hours to 7 days. So a little bit on management. Um, first of all, they mentioned that there's a you know, quick confirmatory test that can be done just qualitatively 
if you add sodium dithionite to alkalinized urine, uh, if your urine turns yellow-green, uh, this should, in the correct setting being of being concerned for a diquat exposure, let you think that they've probably ingested the diquat. Apparently, a paraquat can do this as well. Um, if, you're, if you feel it's important when looking at that patient to know the difference between they ingested diquat or paraquat, perhaps it's a problem. Uh, you can order blood levels. Um, and there's just not enough data to say if you can really make any prognostic uh, or treatment uh, projections based on a blood level, but it can be ordered. Uh, decontamination is something you can consider. They propose lavage and um, possibly activated charcoal within an hour of a potentially life-threatening ingestion. They do caution that um, you'd be at pretty high risk of perforating a patient uh, if you try to lavage them, given how extensively damaged their uh, oropharyngeal mucosa can be from the ingestion. And then other than that, really uh, promptly instituting supportive care is going to be your mainstay. Um, and, you know, they, they caution that, you know, you need to pay vigorous attention to fluid and electrolyte replacement, but expect that they're probably going to develop renal failure. For this reason, they specifically recommend against forced diuresis, which is something that has been attempted. Um, it doesn't seem to be very helpful, and patients seem to have their kidneys shut down anyway. Um, finally, they mentioned dialysis. It doesn't really remove relevant quantities of the uh, diquat. However, in a patient who develops renal failure, uh, they clearly may need dialysis as a supportive measure rather than as a treatment of the actual uh, toxicity. That's pretty much it. The authors uh, conclude that you know, it's an uncommon but definitely potentially lethal exposure and uh, GI, renal, pulmonary, cardiac, and CNS complications have all been described. All right, nice little summary of uh, DiQuant to get, kind of introduce us there. I mean, it is it is available in this country. I forget the brand names that are out there. It's kind of used for broadleaf killers and whole, you know, vegetation killers and people that like lots of, like, forestation growing over into their yards, but in general, all the contact exposures, we can just wash them off, and people just have a liquor taste or a little in their mouth, we can generally wash it, home, wash it home. I can't remember ever seeing a case where they actually developed mucosal injuries, and I don't really ever remember in our case locally where we anyone's ever took this suicidally. Unfortunately, that's not such the story with Paraquat in most of South Asia and other parts of the world, so... Here's a band to tell us about uh, some insights from Nick Buckley and folks from on the medical management of Paraquat for their vast experience. Yeah, this is uh, Ben Hatton. I'm the other toxicology fellow. Um, I'm going to review the paper, The Medical Management of Paraquat Ingestion, and it's a review article um, uh, on paraquat ingestion. So a little background is... Uh, Self-harm with pesticides is a major public health problem in developing countries, and um, uh, particularly in South Asia and the Asia-Pacific region, there are about 300,000 deaths each year um, uh, from this, and uh, um, organophosphates uh, make up the majority of admissions, but because of the high case fatality rate of Paraquat, it's the leading single agent that causes death um, from pesticide poisoning. Um, the, uh, uh, the, you also see pretty high rates in the Caribbean and Trinidad and Tobago, um, and in Samoa, and uh, uh, analysis in the developed world between 1945 and 1989, Paraquat was uh, responsible for over half of all pesticide deaths in England and Wales, was responsible for more deaths in the uh, in the U.S. and the AAPCC uh, data in 2008 than any other pesticide. Um, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about this more, but they mentioned that in Sri Lanka, where it was a pretty significant problem, there have been trials of new formulations um, and new con and decreased concentrations. Um, and it was banned recently in most European countries and also in Sri Lanka. Um, it has uh, an extremely high case fatality, and it's uh, due to a couple things, both because of its toxicity and the lack of any good treatment for it. Um, there are no widely accepted guidelines on treatment. Um, people have tried a lot of different things, but even with very intensive therapy that we'll talk about later, the mortality rate is still over 50%, uh, even in places that have those sort of protocols. Um, 
and they, the authors suggest that the evidence for these treatment options is largely just extrapolation from animal studies that uh, uh, aren't necessarily clinically relevant. So they did this as a, they did a systematic search, they say, uh, for articles uh, through a few different databases um, and also used some unpublished information on uh, uh, their group's clinical trials and cohort studies of paraquat self-poisoning in Sri Lanka, and they have 800 patients that they've been studying. Um, so the mechanism of toxicity, it's similar to diquat. It uh, um, the end point is that it generates a significant uh, amount of free radicals and oxidative stress, and it, uh, uh, it undergoes redox cycling and, um, and metabolizes uh, uh, through various systems to produce these uh, uh, toxic uh, products. Um, the free radicals uh, end up causing lipid peroxidation, uh, mitochondrial toxicity, oxidation of NADPH, um, uh, activation of nuclear factor kappa B, and uh, that can result in apoptosis. Um, uh, and so there are multiple um, uh, molecular mechanisms uh, that ca cause this toxicity, and it occurs in kind of uh, diffusely throughout the body. Um, and uh, they all these mechanisms, they say, are not exclusive. They all all probably occur, and they're likely to be synergistic. Um, and because it occurs in, uh, because it has su such uh, uh, diverse clinical effects, the uh, uh, there's not. It's difficult to develop an agent targeted to uh, to uh, stop this process, and that's one of the been the, one of the biggest challenges with paraquat poisoning. Um, it <clears throat> clinically. We see the effect most severely in the lungs, and that's kind of the hallmark of paraquat toxicity, um, or at least the distinguishing feature. Um, and you develop an acute alveolitis, um, and then you go on to develop diffuse alveolar collapse, vascular congestion, uh, adherence of activated platelets and PMNs uh, into the vascular endothelium. And uh, most of the affected cells, um, uh, it leads to apoptosis of most of the affected uh, cells. And the primary target is the alveolar epithelium. There's an initial acute destructive phase where both type 1 and type 2 uh, pneumocytes uh, um, uh, are damaged, and then the uh, alveoli sloughs, and uh, you get pulmonary edema. Then this is followed, the second phase is a proliferative phase um, where you fill the alveolar space with mononuclear uh, profibroblasts, and that matures into fibroblasts within days to weeks. Then your Next stage is lung fibrosis, um, and that's kind of the end point in your lung. Kidneys also have um, uh, pathologic damage, uh, and you see large vacuolation in proximal convoluted tubules, leads to necrosis. You can also get congestion and hepatocellular injury, um, and uh, you can see these changes in a few hours to days. So toxicokinetics, um, so paraquat's rapidly but incompletely absorbed when you ingest it. It's rapidly distributed to lung, liver, kidney, and muscle. Uh, kind of a moderate size volume of distribution, 1.2 to 1.6 liters per kilogram. Um, and then uh, within 12 to 24 hours after you ingest it, 90% of your absorbed paraquat is excreted unchanged in the urine. That would be fine. You would eliminate it pretty quickly, but um, the, the problem is that you... Uh, injure your kidneys, and uh, that means you have nonlinear kinetics because um, you're, uh, you can't eliminate, eliminate the, uh, the, all your paraquat as your kidneys start to die. So that means it goes into your deeper compartments, uh, and it takes uh, days to weeks to slowly eliminate uh, the remainder of the paraquat. So the eliminate, initial elimination half-life is, half is around six hours, but after the first day, whatever's left then it changes to four days. Um, so it's uh, actively taken up against a, a concentration gradient in type 2 uh, pneumocytes, and, uh, and so that also could also be considered another compartment when you're uh, making the model of, uh, uh, of compartments for distribution. Uh, and elimination from that compartment is even slower than the other one, so even longer than the four-day half-life in the other compartments. 
clinical manifestations, so a lot of it depends on how much you take, but uh, you take large amounts of liquid, con liquid concentrate, so that's over 50 to 100 mLs of 20%, um, uh, results in uh, fulminate organ failure, pulmonary edema, cardiac, renal, and hepatic failure, and seizures. Um, these patients have hypoxia, shock, and metabolic acidosis at presentation, and you die from multi-organ failure in uh, several hours to a few days. If you get smaller ingestions, then you can get toxicity in the key target organs of kidneys and lung that develop over the next two to six days. And this is referred to as moderate to severe poisoning in the clinical literature. They say this, calling it moderate to severe, only makes sense be... Uh, because uh, the mortality in this moderate to severe group is still well over 50%. It's just that the uh, large ingestions are universally fatal. Um, so renal failure develops rapidly, um, and you can monitor creatinine, or they say cystatin C concentrations over the first day to detect who's going to develop renal failure, and that helps predict long-term outcome. But the major effect is in your lungs, and like we talked about uh, before, you get um, uh, lung cell damage that decreases gas exchange, and you get respiratory impairment. And uh, we talked about the multiple phases, the acute alveolitis over one to three days, followed by secondary fibrosis, um, and you usually get increasing respiratory involvement over three to seven days, and people can die of severe anoxia <clears throat> up to five weeks later. You also usually see some liver toxicity, um, but uh, the death is usually pulmonary, not renal or liver toxicity. You also get GI toxicity in every, basically everybody who ingests it. You get mucosal lesions in the mouth and tongue, and it's called paraquat tongue. Um, and uh, that occurs in a few days and then becomes ulcerated with bleeding. There's really no prognostic significance. Um, and... Uh, uh, but you can get deeper lesions uh, in the pharynx, esophagus, and stomach um, that can result in perforation, mediastinitis, or pneumomediastinum. And nobody really knows how much that contributes to mortality. So patients who present very sick uh, in extremis, they have no realistic hope of recovery. So they, you should basically write them off, they, is what they say. <laughs> um, the, uh, you can... Yeah, you can do um, basic ABCs, um, uh, however, with the caveat that mild to moderate hypoxia should not be treated with oxygen because this worsens your oxidative stress and greatly increases lethality in animal models. So that's something you need to remember if you have a paraquat ingestion, try to avoid um, uh, uh, oxygen supplementation. Um, the, uh, if you have hypotension, it's usually because of hypovolemia, and you should get fluid boluses, boluses should shoot for a high urine output, but the renal, renal failure develops over the first 24 hours, so you need to monitor their fluid status pretty closely. Um, usually have a normal mental uh, level of consciousness, and if they don't initially, then uh, it's either they ingested something else along with it, or they're incredibly sick and they're going to die. Um, and uh, you can confirm there's a semi-quantitative test that uses bicarb and sodium dithionate mm -hmm. uh, as a bedside test to confirm systemic paraquat to toxicity in alkaline uh, medium. Sodium dithionate reduces paraquat to a blue radical. Um, and if the urine paraquat concentration is more than one milligram per liter, the urine turns blue. And that's a very poor prognosis. Um, so you can also send off a plasma paraquat uh, concentration uh, to confirm poisoning. And there are some nomograms that have de been developed. Um, and they predict from four to 200 hours after ingestion. Um, they're all relatively accept acceptable. Um, and you can use that. And of note, you can use the same uh, colorimetric method on plasma samples uh, if you want to do a rapid test. Um, if um, you, again, they emphasize if you present with overt systemic to toxicity within the first day, you have no hope of survival. Um, they emphasize this multiple times in the paper, so just uh, it's not don't a good ingestion. Yeah, don't drink Paraquat. Um, and they also note that patients who complain of a burning sensation in their skin have a very poor prognosis, which isn't something I'd heard of before. But 
Um, they say gastric lavage followed by charcoal has been recommended for those who present with one, within one hour, but there's no proven clinical benefit. Um, uh, and they recommend using either charcoal or fuller's earth um, in patients who have a uh, protected airway. Um, they say they don't, these authors don't re recommend gastric lavage because of uh, the potential uh, risk of perforation, but it has been suggested by other authors. Um, so other stuff to do, chest x-ray, CT of the chest may be helpful, amylase and lipase may look for pancreatitis, um, and uh, you should monitor closely for acute renal failure, liver toxicity, respiratory failure, um, and mucosal inter, uh, injury. Of note, uh, you should put an NG tube in pretty early and feed early, uh, as early as possible, because uh, adequate vitamin supplementation uh, can help with the prognosis. Some places dialyze, uh, and they go through a pretty long discussion of hemodialysis. It sounds like it's not particularly helpful unless uh, patients develop renal failure, and even then, it doesn't work great. So you still have a mortality of over 50% uh, in, uh, in centers that routinely perform hemoperfusion or hemodialysis. Say so if you're going to use it um, in experimental models, hemoperfusion uh, shows moderately superior clearance to hemodialysis for 90 minutes after initiation of the procedure, but um, the hemoperfusion uh, uh, performance decreases rapidly, whereas hemodialysis hemodialysis clearance remains static. Um, uh, but if you're going to do it, you should do it early and uh, just stick with whatever you're used to. Um, so, yes. I, yeah. Do you mind if I can ask a question, something yeah. I've always wondered mm -hmm. about? I'll speak loud, loudly mm -hmm. enough. They can hear me. Um, just this thing about fuller's earth or diatomaceous earth, you right. always kind of hear that thrown out right. as something you can do with paraquat, and I'm wondering why it is that in this case, with this ingestion, that's something we recommend, and do places really have fuller's earth or diatomaceous earth on standby? Yeah, there's two substances. One is bentonite, and one is fuller's earth, and they're both, one's the calcium and one's the sodium, a salt of a molybdenum-containing clay. And both of them were used for years as the absorbent of choice. Um, there have been recent studies, which we're not going to cover today, suggesting that activated charcoal works just as good. It's far more available. And, you know, unless you have an aquarium in the waiting room and someone's got some bentonite at the bottom of the aquarium, um, you can go ahead and scoop that out and have them drink it. We used to have a bag of bentonite at work years ago in an area where there's a lot of agricultural stuff going on just in case of paraquat ingestion did come in, and we actually had seen a couple um, over the years back then, we gave them bentonite to drink, but it's a very fine clay uh, powder you can mix up in a slurry and have them drink it the same way we have people drink a slurry of activated charcoal, but I don't think anyone's carrying it, it's really not considered a pharmaceutical that you would acquire through pharmaceutical sources, it's really it's a powder. One of the things that people sometimes talk about for rural areas, if someone's out in the middle of nowhere and they drank this by accident, is just to have them start eating dirt, basically, because it kind of works about the same way as an absorbent, and especially clay uh, in the earth is good for them. Okay, so it sounds like it's mostly a historical issue from that's how yeah. generically ingestions used to be managed. And, right. Okay, thank you. All right. Uh, now we'll talk about immunosuppression as a possible therapy. So it's used uh, widely to treat paraquat um, uh, toxicity, and the theory is that because paraquat leads to an acute inflammatory response, if you inhibit that, then that may prevent some lung fibrosis and, uh, and death. And there's the most widely studied regimen uses cyclophosphamide, mesna, methylprednisolone, and dexamethasone. Um, and uh, dexamethasone is probably the one that's been best studied, and it can ameliorate the histological and biochemical changes induced by paraquat and reduce lipid peroxidation and survival in Wistar rats. Um, However, there aren't, there's not good evidence that the, an immunosuppressive regimen um, improves survival. Uh, in fact, they go through and put holes in all the studies that, uh, that have been used to support this and suggest that this 
may or the benefit from this is probably exaggerated and um, that the, there's probably not a significant benefit. There was a systematic review um, in 2003 uh, that uh, um, that didn't show that there was good evidence that there was no uh, uh, no survival benefit and then but they do say that there is a larger double-blind randomized control trial of immunosuppression that should be available for report in 2011. I haven't heard that that has come out yet. So, um, so we may have more data in the future. But um, the um, antioxidants are another suggestion of a possible um, uh, uh, treatment. And they have some impressive in. Uh, in vitro results, um, but mixed and modest results in animal studies. Uh, all human studies are either small, absent, or uncontrolled. So people have tried vitamin E, um, and that showed less uh, lipid peroxidation than controls in rats, um, and the mechanism may be uh, membrane stabilization of polyunsaturated fatty acids and reactive oxygen species scavenging. Also inhibits uh, NFKB, uh, um, and uh, but the animal and human studies don't have good evidence for it. Vitamin C is an antioxidant that donates an electron to free radicals and neutralizes them. Um, there were some promising animal studies. Um, however, uh, the human studies is very small. Um, and uh, so it's kind of questionable whether that, that actually works. Um, the... People have suggested NAC uh, and acetylcysteine because it replenishes cysteine, which is the rate-limiting step in the synthesis of glutathione, uh, which the body uses as an antioxidant defense, and that reduces paraquat-induced apoptosis and inflammatory uh, response in cell cultures. In rats, it improves survival, um, and... Um, it, but it hasn't really been studied in uh, humans. Uh, and deferoxamine has been studied because iron is thought to be an important uh, contri contributor to the generation of uh, reactive oxygen species. Um, and uh, it was protective in animal experiments, but no, uh, um, no benefit in... Uh, whole animal rat studies, and no, there have been no human studies. There, they've also looked at uh, salicylic acid um, because of its antioxidant uh, uh, abilities, um, and it reduced oxidative stress, uh, lots of different uh, damages, but, uh, but there have been no human uh, studies. So in animal models, it had some promise. So based on animal and human uh, data... It's the author's opinion that NAC, vitamin C, salicylates, and dexamethasone probably have the most promising mechanisms um, and ha have been studied for other things, so they have safety profiles. But you need way more evidence to, to make a good uh, choice. Um, so uh, they suggest further study of these. Um, the um, management Conclusions, they say there are two competing philosophies that drive management decisions. The first is that just you need to recognize that a lot of these people die and no treatments are likely to be effective. And so some people suggest just doing minimal low-risk interventions, charcoal, IV fluids, and maybe an antioxidant, and keep the patients comfortable. And if they survive, they survive. If they die, they die. And the second is that the... Um, that you can't really do much worse than drinking paraquat. So whatever you do is probably not going to do more harm. And that group kind of throws the entire uh, kitchen sink at, at the patient. Do dialysis, immunosuppression, and add whatever other cocktail of treatments you can think of. Um, but they suggest if you're in a center that sees a lot of paraquat, just develop a strategy and, uh, and report your results. That way we can learn something from you. So um, it was a little long, but uh, very comprehensive, and I think a reasonable review of uh, what's out there on Paraquat.
Yeah, thanks, Jesser. A, a great review. And basically, we, we still don't have an answer, and everyone's got their own opinions. Um, there's really two modes the way you die. There's like a, a, you know, an acute fulminant disease where you get ill very quickly, you die of pulmonary death, multiple organ system failure. And trying to save those people or coming up with a predictive rule for those people may be useful as far as not doing a lot of resource overutilization. But it's the second group where they're really looking into the ones who slowly develop pulmonary fibrosis. How can you can you prevent that through all these things like NAC and vitamins and antioxidants and cyclosporin and uh, azathioprine? And unfortunately, there's been a five or six nomograms produced ever since Prop 50 is in the early mid 70s, and each one sort of works sort of well. Each one's a little different than the others in the population they were tested. But they're all relying on levels and sort of other factors that aren't available when you first come through the door. So the big question is, is can you figure out when they come through the door, I mean, unless they're moribund, can you figure out a way of just doing something we have at the bedside? Who's really going to be that sick category and who's going to be sort of that second category? So to review, two simple things that we have available to us in two different uh, areas where they use this is... Uh, um, to other uh, investigation groups look at where they see a lot of paraquats looking at blood gases, which is plain and simple, and lactates, which more and more of us are using uh, to kind of prognosticate who's sick and who lacks ability to uh, have anaerobic metabolism done correctly. So to look over those two articles, we have our rotating med uh, internal med emergency medicine resident, Mike. So thanks, Zane. Um, so this is Mike Herndon. I'm an emergency medicine uh, resident here at OHSU PGY2. Uh, first uh, paper we're going to look at is uh, from the uh, Clinical Toxicology Journal, uh, 2011. I looked at the prognostic uh, significance of ABG analysis and ABG indices in the uh, early evaluation of paracot poisoning uh, in patients. Um, and the premise for both of these articles is that uh, Paraquat uh, concentrations in blood and urine are, uh, as we know, useful in uh, making the diagnosis, but uh, are quite unavailable uh, and limited in certain areas of the world. So looking at a couple of different options for how to uh, um, detect and, and have a good uh, prognostic uh, indicator as to uh, mortality. So the goal of this paper um, was, again, to look at the ABG indices uh, and looking at prognosis and paraquat uh, poisoning. Uh, it was a sum, uh, summarization of case data. There was 138 patients uh, that were poisoned with oral paraquat uh, that were treated in ED uh, in a hospital in Beijing, China. A uh, study occurred, or the data was obtained from June uh, 2009 to September 2010. Inclusion criteria included uh, presentation in less than 24 hours, of taking an oral dose of over 5 mLs of 20% paraquat solution. Uh, also, uh, it had to have paraquat detected in the blood uh, and or urine. And then uh, no history of chronic disease of the heart, lungs, liver, kidney, uh, no cancer, and no history of diabetes. Exclusion criteria included uh, unclear treatments that were uh, performed. Uh, next was uh, treatment with hemoperfusion or hemodialysis to correct an acid-base status. And then patients with inappropriate follow-up were also excluded. Uh, so the distribution, uh, there are 138 total patients, uh, slightly more females than males, ages range 12 to 59, median age is 24. Uh, the treatments that uh, everyone received were upon admission, uh, blood and urine samples, uh, for paraquat levels were obtained and an ABG was performed. Uh, all patients were treated by their local protocol, which was gastric lavage, catharsis, and forced diuresis. Um, and next, all patients with detectable uh, paraquat levels uh, were treated with one to two uh, doses, or excuse me, rounds of two and a half hour courses of activated charcoal chemoperfusion. Um, all patients also received high-dose methylprednisolone pulse therapy in combination with cyclosporin. And uh, in addition, um, as Ben previously talked about, they, they gave some uh, reduced glutathione, which I'm assuming is maybe in the form of NAC, uh, and uh, vitamin C, and then, of course, symptomatic and supportive uh, treatments. 
so the uh, analysis of, of in this paper looked at ABG values on admission, blood paraquat concentration, prognosis, and survival time. Uh, results uh, were as follows: 138 patients enrolled, uh, 77 died, 61 survived, giving us a mortality rate of 55.8 percent. Pretty evenly distributed uh, between males and females. Uh, of note, the age, admit time, oral paraquat amount, and blood paraquat uh, concentrations were not normally distributed. Uh, and then, of the deceased, the mean survival time was six, uh, a little over six days. Uh, 40, about 47% died in less than three days. Uh, about 25% in four to seven days, and uh, about 28% in uh, died after seven days. The ABG values uh, relationship, they looked at the relationship between the base excess and prognosis. Um, and specifically, the, if you had a base excess of greater than or equal to negative two, uh, there were 19 of 62 patients in that category and, um, of, uh, of whom died, giving us a percentage of 30% um, of those patients with a base excess of minus two or above that died. Uh, if your base excess was minus two to minus five, 57% uh, of those patients uh, died in the study. And then if your base excess was less than uh, minus 5, 100% um, of those patients died. And that was 34 out of 34. Um, there were no differences in age, uh, gender, admit time for those um, analyses. And then, uh, so to, they did a rock analysis um, and picked a cutoff of negative uh, 3.6 for base excess which gave a, a poor sensitivity of 54.5%, but a specificity of 98.4% uh, with respect to prognosis um, and likelihood of uh, death. Um, hazards uh, model, uh, Cox proportional hazard model was then performed, uh, which looked at the amount of paraquat ingested, blood paraquat concentration, and base excess value, uh, which were uh, statistical significance in determining the outcomes. and. Uh, so the result of that was that a larger negative base excess uh, value uh, equaled a higher hazard of death, as we um, could easily extrapolate from the data. Uh, base excess PCO2 and bicarb uh, was lower in the non-survival group, which was to be expected as well, and uh, lower val values also correlated to decreased survival time. Um, so the theory behind this is that there, there's significant differences in mortality between the three groups, uh, suggesting that ABG and dices may be of use in early judgment of prognosis uh, in paraquat poisoning patients. Uh, limitations here, the variations in admit time after ingestion, uh, and it may influence the predictive value of the base excess in individual patients. Um, and one thing that could have been improved on, the authors talked about, was doing more serial ABG measurements in dices over time. Any comments on that before we go to the next one? No, only that, you know, kind of what I said earlier is they didn't, they just looked at death as kind of a big blunt thing and or generally separate out the early deaths from sort of fulminant organ failure from the late alveolar deaths. Um, but of note, when these patients come in, their numbers didn't look that terrible. I mean, their PO2s were in the 90s, although there was some difference between the two groups and they had some renal dysfunction, but it wasn't dramatic. So these people looked pretty normal when they come in and it's trying to find these subtle acidosis they may be evolving as some predictor of who's going to die. And I guess with this study, with base excess negative five, which is an acidosis, but it's probably a, a, a mixed picture acidosis that's subtle because there's no change in the pH that goes along with it uh, that reaches a p-value. Mm -hmm. yeah. All right, well, talk about the other paper, which is also just as interesting, I believe. Absolutely. So this next study uh, was out of somewhere. Korea. Korea. Um, and uh, this was from Clinical Toxicology in uh, 2012. Um, this year. And it looked at uh, arterial lactate as a predictor of mortality in emergency department patients with paraquat intoxication. Um, so the objective was to evaluate if initial uh, lactate is a good predictor of mortality in these patients. Um, and so the premise for this is that serum lactate is a uh, simple manifestation of organ dysfunction, something they can easily draw. They can have it within seven minutes of uh, arrival and uh, performing the blood test at the um, specific hospital. 
so materials and, and methods here, there was a retrospective study. Um, patients uh, were admitted with uh, paraquat intoxication to an ED in Korea. Um, acute paraquat poisoning was confirmed with a urine uh, paraquat test. Patients that were excluded uh, were those that did not have exposures that, uh, orally, if there were combined drug exposures, if they discharged AMA, if they were transferred to another uh, hospital, uh, or they had pre-hospital cardiac arrest, as well as paraquat exposures greater than 24 hours to presentation, and if no lactate levels were checked. Um, all patients, uh, again, like the previous study, had uh, gastric lavage uh, if you ingested within less than two hours, Fuller's Earth plus mannitol if less than, uh, uh, presenting less than 12 hours, and uh, hemoperfusion. Um, so information that was obtained and included uh, was uh, age and gender, estimated ingested dosage of paraquat, time between ED arrival and serum lactate, initial vital signs, hemoperfusion, uh, whether they got it um, or did not. Uh, labs, um, routine labs were checked, including the lipase amylase and arterial lactate. Um, they also calculated an Apache 2 score for each of these patients as well, um, as that has been used in uh, the past as an attempt to predict um, uh, mortality in uh, these overdoses. Um, and then they could not perform uh, serum paraquat uh, concentrations at this uh, facility, so we did not have those um, in the data collection. Um, and you were considered a survivor if you were alive uh, um, greater than three months after paraquat ingestion, and you had normal vital signs and no complaints, um, and you were a non-survivor if you did not meet the above criteria. Uh, let's see. So uh, they... After uh, kind of the initial data analysis, they did a secondary study to look at arterial lactate in Apache 2 um, to further compare um, to further compare these and calculate the sensitivity, specificity, positive predicted value, and negative predicted value of these. Um, the results of the study, so there were 356 total patients. Um, 272 of them were included. So this was from January 2005 to January 2011. Uh, exclusions uh, were um, seven that were pre-hospital deaths, two co-ingested uh, um, co substances, and a lactate was not measured on 23 patients. Overall mortality was 81.6%, um, and let's see, 40% of the patients had, uh, hemo that had hemoperfusion, um, and only 28% of those uh, survived. Um, 19 patients uh, that did not get hemoperfusion that survived, uh, seven of them spit out the pericot before uh, swallowing it, and 11 had uh, trace or weak urine tests or results, and those um, 19, uh, 18 or 19 patients there uh, did not uh, um, get hemoperfusion. Uh, there were 103 patients uh, that uh, they could not estimate the dosage, um, and they said uh, that their reasoning for that was that uh, drowsiness was the cause of not being able to obtain this, this information from the patient 38% of the time, followed by coma, and then 50% um, of the patients refused to answer the question. Uh, 90, uh, uh, and then out of the 272, 94% uh, uh, of the patients uh, reported that this was a self-harm attempt, and then 6% uh, was an accidental ingestion. Um, so the lactate values uh, in uh, the non-survivors, um, there was a higher arterial lactate uh, with a median of 8.3, and the survivors had a median lactate of 2.8. Uh, higher age, heart rate, hemoglobin levels, creatinine, AST, ALT, amylase, lipase, PaO2, and Apache 2 scores were noted also in this group. And then lower pH, uh, PaCO2, bicarb and uh, O2 were noted in this group as well, um, which is to be expected. Uh, so I think the take home there is the higher lactate um, with a, a median of 8.3 in the um, deceased. Uh, so increased arterial lactate is associated with um, higher risk of death and an odds ratio of 7.02 um, after controlling for uh, compounders. And a lactate greater than 4.4 .4, um, gave a significant uh, shorter time to death uh, when they put it in their analysis with a hazards ratio of 2.2 uh, 
Um, and then, again, the rock uh, uh, curve analysis, they looked at the uh, used lactate cutoff of 4.4 um, and obtained a sensitivity of 82%, specificity of 88%, positive predictive value of 97%, and negative predictive value of 53%. And then um, they also uh, uh, used the Apache 2 cutoff of 9 in there, and uh, sensitivity was a little bit worse, uh, sensitivity and specificity were both slightly worse, um, and similar positive predictive values and negative predictive values, but also slightly worse. So, um, they, they, they basically, by looking at those two, they, because Apache 2 has been used before, they, they felt confident in saying that there's a similar, similar discriminant uh, power for predicting prognosis between Apache 2 and using the lactate. Um, so, to kind of summarize, analysis of an arterial lactate is safe, fast, and easy to obtain in the ED, um, provides some prognostic value in acute pericoc poisoning, it's comparable to the Apache 2 scoring, um, when you cannot obtain paracot levels. Um, their limitations were retrospective study, limited amount and quality of data, plasma paracot levels not being measured, and then no serial lactates being performed. Yeah, so something, certainly we're using a lot more lactates for lots of other things, both in tox and other areas, so for trauma, for septic shock, for sepsis itself, we've looked at it in other venues we reviewed with calcium channel blockers and beta blockers, cyanide it's been looked at. So one more severe poisoning where lactate may help predict and probably doesn't take that high of a lactate, a lactate of four or five to predict high mortality in something that has a high mortality. I don't think anyone really nowadays is suggesting like don't do anything for these patients because realistically they come in and their PO2s and PCO2s and everything else don't look too bad despite them having taken this. And I think you try to get it out of their system through lavage or an absorbent of your choice and then it's general supportive care after that. Um, and it's interesting just to look around the world in China, Korea, Sri Lanka, everywhere else has, everyone's got a different protocol. They all use something a little bit different. There are some common grounds there. Um, certainly hemoperfusion is used in several countries that we don't use it here because it's just generally not available. So really, maybe the real issue is not to try to round the horses up and put them back in the barn after they've got out, but to try to prevent them from getting out in the first place. Now, to that end, um, the folks in Sri Lanka have actually done a variety of steps to try to limit the toxicity of um, uh, paraquat itself. So this is an article entitled, uh, Formulation Changes in Time Trends and Outcome Following Paraquat Ingestion in Sri Lanka, Elta from Clintox 2011. It's by Nick Buckley and uh, co-author and digger Garwaramana and Andrew Dawson, people who have done work in this area before. And after the usual sort of introduction telling how bad this all is, they mentioned that a couple of events happened as far as packaging uh, Paraquat goes. In 2004, in September, they introduced a new formulation that contained a natural alginate that immediately gels and forms like a sticky, gelly substance inside the stomach when it hits the pH of the stomach. And associated with it is also an emetic to make you vomit. So the idea behind this is you ate the paraquat, it gels into a ball, you can't absorb it. The, the emetic is absorbed, it makes you vomit this little ball of gelled paraquat out. I mean, <laughs> fascinating idea. And this product was called, was called in Intion. And if you look back and listen to our old uh, tapes, we actually reviewed the introduction of that product and how it changed a little bit of the mortality from paraquat. Well, what happened over time is they kept kind of working with different versions of the same formulation. There was an improved formulation because two of the products sort of separated out over time and it formed like a bilayer in the bottle. And unless you shook it up, they weren't really emulsified well. So a modified formulation came out that had an increased amount of emetic and a purgative and alginate. And they took out the surfactants that tended to separate this out, although it sticks to the leaves less well. It maybe was what they wanted to study. So this study is similar to one that we covered previously. They looked at 10 large hospitals in Sri Lanka, and they looked at people who had reported ingestions of paraquat, or if it was unknown that the signs fit paraquat poisoning with mouth lesions or discoloration, and they prospectively collected data for 
2006 on and compared it to data from earlier. And they, again, looked at the different treatments and estimated the volume of, uh, of, of how much was taken, uh, this 20% solution. And they did some plasma and urine samples as well with HPLC and light uh, chromatography mass spec to try to uh, document that indeed these were paraquat uh, ingestions. And then they followed up the study doctors, visited patients at home six weeks later to verify that they're still alive. Just kind of knock on your door, just uh, checking. Uh, yeah, no problem. So here's the timeline of the formulations. The original uh, formulation of Intion, the alginate form, was on the market in 2004 of October, and the replacement for it came two, two years later in October 2006. And they went through some detail about there's some markers in each of these compounds that you can get a tox screen on to see which of these compounds they took, so you don't have to rely on patient memory of like when they bought the compound or what the name of the actual compound it was. And the first uh, compound had a little bit of diquat in it. So if you can do a HPLC and find a little diquat, you know they took original formulation. And later on they used something a little less toxic called DEP as a marker. And if you can find that on their tox screen and a diquat, then they took the later formulation of Intion. And so they went through, you know, studies that were either definitely present or not present to try to stratify it that way. They looked at um, primary analysis was uh, survival um, and time-to-death analysis and some hazard ratios. And they calculated that they would see a, with a power study, a 2.5 reduction in the potency of Intion, um, and they would need 157 standard case formulations and 157 of the new formulations to give an 80% power to, de check, to detect a change in survival. So they were hoping to get a little over 300 patients. So it turns out they ended up with 565 patients, so more than they needed over the study period. 32 were excluded, and the number of patients were then classified into the categories of definite or not definite or uncertain. There was 126 confirmed cases of the standard old formulation, 174 confirmed cases of the new, the first generation Intian product and 66, uh, sorry, of the new product and 66 confirmed cases of the original alginate product, the one that was introduced earlier. Um, and what they found as far as mortality was um, usual, more males drank this as usual. Most of these were deliberate overdoses, 95%. There was a higher percentage of standard formulation cases that ingested more than 30 cc's compared to the intion cases. They also noted that fewer intion cases received the same amount of IV fluids as standard formulations, uh, but a higher proportion were given antiemetics. Um, so I guess they were vomiting, and so they gave them antiemetics, which is kind of what the product was designed to do. And overall, there was an improved six-week survival among the Intion patients compared with those ingesting the standard formulation with a survival rate of 40% versus 31% um, with a confidence interval that stayed above 1, in this case, 2.3 to 19%. But however, all of the survival curves looked very similar. And the largest proportion of survivors really were in the group where they didn't have a positive urine test for either of the two compounds, so they may not have taken that herbicide or took too little of that herbicide to give a positive urine test. So basically saying, if you didn't take too much, you'd survive, or you didn't know what you took, it's probably not paraquat because we're not detecting it in the urine. Your chances of survival are, are good. Um, mortality, again, was strongly associated with the increased volume of ingestion. Um, with age above 50, these uh, factors haven't looked at and uh, looked at before. And there was little, little evidence that survival following ingestion of Intion was improved compared to the now standard formulation over time. So though they made these nice changes and they made it gel and made you throw up, overall survival didn't change. And in their fully adjusted analysis with stratification by hospitals, each hospital saying maybe therapy was different in each hospital and they matched them. There was really no protective difference between the different groups. Their overall survival of their whole 533 patient population was 44%, so still pretty high, maybe a little bit better than some of the historical other papers we just talked about. 
and their survival rate in previous studies of the Intion product was 35%. They didn't feel that was uh, the rate was significantly higher, and they really had a hard time explaining that one, um, and that the new product really had a little bit higher survival rate compared with historical controls. So what can we conclude? Well, they changed the product, and it really didn't change the outcome. Although it seemed like a great idea in preventative medicine, um, it really didn't uh, live up to its expectations. Um, and now, uh, I think, as we mentioned in one of the other papers, that all Paraquat was finally banned in Sri Lanka because I don't think they can prevent anybody from eating the stuff deliberately, which is 95% of the ingestions that was, that was going on. So an attempt at some preventative measures, but um, even with that, um, unable to really make that much of a, of a difference. Um, so uh, any other further comments uh, about any of our herbicides here? So when it gets warm this weekend, go out and use regular Roundup, I guess, is the answer, instead of uh, any of this stuff. Actually, there's one Roundup formulation that has 2% diclot in it. Yeah, there is, and so you got to be careful when they call that stuff in. But yeah, but it's usually low enough that it's yeah. your patients don't get in too much trouble. Most of the time, they end up getting it on their eyes, and they complain of their eyes burning and their mouth burning and other issues along those lines. So we'll expect to see some herbicide-related events as the spring is upon us, but I don't think we're going to see this really terrible stuff, thankfully, in, in this country. So um, until next time, it's uh, we'll hear, see you back here at the Oregon Poison Center.